Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. To highlight all of today's guests' accomplishments in an introduction would take hours, but today we have the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of Medicine from Duke University, Dr. Robert J. Lefkowitz. He's an HHMI investigator, and his scientific contributions have impacted nearly every field of medicine. He's won several highly coveted awards, including the National Medal of Science, the Shaw Prize, the Albany Prize, and the 2012 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. He's been elected to the National Academy of Sciences, the Institute of Medicine, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Lefkowitz has authored hundreds of highly impactful scientific articles and has also wrote on the importance of physician scientists. He recently published a memoir, which we'll talk about in today's episode. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Round. As the resident science nerd between Caleb and I, I am absolutely ecstatic for today's interview. We have our very first Nobel laureate, Dr. Robert Lefkowitz, here to talk about his experience as a leader in both medicine and science, as well as uh, his memoir that he recently wrote. As a part of this episode, we'll also be launching a book giveaway where we will be giving away one of Dr. Lefkowitz's cop- a copy of his memoir. Before we get into all that, Caleb, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Post call today. So slept a little bit last night, <laughs> took a nap, and then ready to go interview this guest today. Awesome. Glad to hear it. I know calls are pretty hard, but I'm not quite there yet. Dr. Lefkowitz, how are you doing? How's lovely North Carolina? Lovely North Carolina is getting hotter and more humid by <laughs> the day. So uh, I've got the air conditioning cranked up and I'm staying inside as much as possible. Awesome. You know, it's getting quite hot here in Detroit as well, despite us being so uh, so far north. Right. Um, so I wanted to start this interview off by alluding to the title of your book, the, the subtitle of your book, The Adrenaline-Fueled Adventures of an Accidental Scientist. Now, as someone myself who has just always loved science, I couldn't really see myself without it, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to describe to our listeners who may not know your background what you mean by an accidental scientist. So what I mean by that is that uh, from a very young age, I would say seven or eight, I felt uh, what I can best describe as a calling uh, to become a physician. I was inspired by my family doctor, Dr. Fibersch, who made calls in the Bronx. He was a general practitioner. Uh, and I just idolized the guy. Uh, he would, he knew all this stuff that nobody else knew. When you were sick, he would come to the house carrying that wonderful black bag full of magic tricks from which he would pull all kinds of amazing instruments, a stethoscope, an otoscope, a reflex hammer. He had his uh, prescription pad in there on which he would write it illegibly. Uh, and it just seemed to me uh, as a kid, what could be better than that? And so I decided about age seven or eight that that was clearly what I was going to do. I say it was a very clarifying vision because I never had to wonder where I was headed throughout my education as I got older. Went to a school called the Bronx High School of Science, uh, which was for gifted and talented who were interested in science and math. Uh, then on to Columbia College, Columbia Medical School. Never did any research along the way uh, because I was just too focused on getting to medical school and, and learning clinical medicine. Even in college, I was reading 
a lot of stuff that, you know, I would, would get to in medical school. I just wanted to jump the curve. So uh, I was a chemistry major in college, but I didn't, you know, I just took all the courses and did the required labs. I, it never interested me to actually do any original research. Uh, graduated from Columbia at the top of my class, medical school, uh, and did my internship and junior residency at Columbia Medical School. Uh, I graduated medical school in 1966, uh, the height of the Vietnam War. Uh, and this was a very, very unpopular war. You may have read about it. Uh, and there were demonstrations, even riots, uh, protesting the war. Uh, I uh, would have happily gone on my way to finish my residency uh, and become a practicing physician and cardiologist, uh, except for the war, because there was a draft. Now, for young men over 18, there was a lottery draft. But for physicians, there was no lottery. Everybody was drafted upon graduation from medical school. You went into the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, or the Public Health Service for two years, but you would generally get a two-year deferment to do an internship and one or two years of residency. Well, as I said, it was a very unpopular war. None of us wanted to participate, much less be shipped off to Vietnam for a year, which was pretty much a guarantee uh, once you were drafted, uh, except if you could get into the public health service, because many of their assignments were in the United States. Uh, and the absolute plum assignment would be to be assigned to the NIH or the CDC for the two years, uh, which was seen as absolutely the best possible outcome. As you can imagine, it was extraordinarily competitive to get those commissions. Everybody wanted them. But again, as I said, since I had done so well academically and was highly recommended, was at a top medical school, I in fact got a commission in the United States Public Health Service. And so in 1968 was commissioned as a lieutenant commander in that service uh, and was assigned to the NIH for two years. Uh, we were uh, somewhat pejoratively referred to, even by ourselves, as Yellow Berets, uh, which was a takeoff on Green Berets, the elite commando forces, and Yellow, uh, presumably indicating cowardice. Uh, but we didn't see ourselves that way at all. We viewed ourselves more as sort of objecting uh, to the war on, on moral grounds. In any case, off I went to the NIH, where for the first year I absolutely floundered. Uh, we spent about 20% of our time on the wards, looking after patients who were in for clinical research studies. The other 80% we were assigned to a laboratory to learn how to do research. Uh, and so I tried, but for the first time in my life, I met with unmitigated sustained failure. That had never happened to me in any activity. Uh, in my life. Uh, I, I was so distressed by it after a year uh, that I uh, made arrangements that at the conclusion of my two-year hitch, I would resume my clinical training and put all this research stuff behind me. And so I signed up uh, at the end of my first year there, I signed up to join uh, a year later the Mass General Hospital for a senior year of medical residency and two years of cardiology fellowship. As luck would have it, during the uh, second year there, my project began to work. I met with some success. By the time I finished my two years, I had published my first few scientific papers and I was kind of beginning to like it, uh, but not so much that I was willing to change my plans as my uh, mentors uh, entreated me to do. 
So off I went to the Mass General, and I threw myself back into the clinical medicine, which I loved. Uh, it was very, very intense uh, for those first six months. And, uh, and I enjoyed it. I loved the clinical work. But I could feel that something was missing. And that's where I really had my epiphany during those first six months. I realized something was missing from this, and it was the research. I, I missed the day-to-day -day, uh, activity of designing experiments, making up hypotheses, challenging myself in the laboratory. And so I came to the conclusion by the end of those first six months that I, I would need to ultimately incorporate research into my career in some way. And so I found another mentor at the Mass General, a fellow named Edgar Haber, who was the chief of the cardiology division and himself a fine basic scientist. And I joined his laboratory. And for the remaining two and a half years there, I split my time between doing my clinical training and working in the laboratory. And then I moved to Duke. So why accidental? Well, for me, the accident was the Vietnam War. Absent the Vietnam War and my being drafted and sent to the NIH, there is no way that I would have gotten into doing research or become a scientist. I think I would have been very content practicing medicine for my career. So I think I would have been fulfilled, as fulfilled as I have been in the dual career uh, that I finally got into and with all the success we achieved in the laboratory. Well, it's hard to imagine that's true. But again, the road not taken, you just don't know. So that's why I call myself an accidental scientist. Going off of that, I read an article in the Chronicle of an interview of you, and you talked about the serendipity of life and how the nature of serendipity is you can't make things happen on your own and you almost have to go with the flow. So as a student or a leader who tends to like control and like to feel like they're kind of in the driver's seat of their life, how do you balance going with the flow and serendipity? It's an excellent question. Uh, and you're right. In my personality and in my private life, I do like to try to control as much as I can. Uh, but one of the things I learned in the laboratory is that uh, try as you might, I mean, uh, you can't control everything. And serendipity is one of the most powerful forces of discovery driving things forward. So uh, th this begs the question, is there anything you can do to increase the chances of the serendipity bestowing her gifts on you. Uh, and I think there are some things, it's very individual, obviously, but uh, I think attitude is a big part of it. I think serendipity uh, blesses each of us. Uh, I don't think there are any exceptions. The question is whether you recognize it at the time uh, and take advantage of it. So for me, for whatever reason, it's my personality or how I'm wired, I operate with a, a tremendous sense of expectancy every day uh, for as long as I can remember. So every day when I'm on my way in to the lab, I have this sense something big is coming, something big. I don't know what it is. Uh, it's, it's just like right around the corner. I can't see it. Well, obviously, and most days, that ain't true. But every once in a while, it seems to be. And I have the feeling I'm waiting for it. 
and you know almost every piece of data that one of my uh, students or fellows show me, I'm looking at with the idea, hmm, is this going to be something really interesting or not? So it's like I'm always on the lookout for this serendipitous, unexpected gift. Uh, I mean, nothing makes me smile more inside than when one of my students comes in and says, Bob, you know that experiment I was doing? I say, yeah, eh, didn't turn out the way we wanted. I say, great, let me hear. Uh, they look at me like, what do you mean great? Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, that's what I love when things don't turn out. I mean, maybe this is it. Uh, so I think a lot of that is sort of uh, attitudinal. Uh, I have heard myself saying in several places that when I look back on my research career, uh, there are times when I feel like rather than me leading the research, the research was leading me. Uh, I almost feel like i am been riding a wild horse, which is the research program, riding a wild horse who is galloping away, trying to throw me off, and I'm holding on to its neck with my legs flailing in the air, just trying to not get bucked off the horse. Uh, so that's kind of the way I, and, and that coming from a control freak. So uh, yeah, I, I think you have correctly discerned the somewhat uh, counterintuitive uh, opposition between uh, parts of my basic nature and the way I have uh, handled my research career. I haven't heard a more colorful description of research than a bucking horse and grabbing <laughs> onto it by its neck. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I look at it. And you know, it's kind of interesting because in my private life, I tend to be kind of conservative and cautious. But in my professional life, I'm sort of the opposite. I'm a big risk taker, uh, kind of a gunslinger. Uh, really kind of interesting. It's almost like a, a role I'm playing, but uh, it's, that's me. And, and that kind of so that kind of surprises me as someone who's mostly finished with your memoir, because you, you one thing that I kept getting from your words was that you, you seem to have this genuine love for life. Yes. And so I wanted to ask, what do you keep in mind or what do you ask yourself to lead a meaningful and fulfilling life? Well, to me, there are only two things uh, in life. Love and family would be one, uh, and work is the other. Uh, so uh, if you want, in my view, if you want to have uh, the most fulfilling life, one, uh, you, you find outlets in productive work, which fulfill two criteria. Uh, one, it's something that you really love to do, have a passion for. And second, uh, it is something for which you have some natural proclivity. Doesn't mean you have to be the best in the world at whatever. But for example, let's say you were always a great student, but you just you don't have it in mathematics. It doesn't come easy to you, etc. On the other hand, you have a real affection and interest in being an astrophysicist. This is not good. 
uh, you cannot be a, a have a fulfilling career as an astrophysicist unless you are really good at mathematics and it comes easy to you. So that would be a, a counter example. Uh, you need to have some, not just interest and passion for something, but you have to be, it's the same thing. If you want to be an artist, you have to have some artistic talent, okay? Uh, if you don't, it's just not going to work. So one, I think you want to find fulfilling work, which requires something that you're passionate about and reasonably good at. Uh, and if you, if you fulfill those two criteria on, uh, criteria on the work side, uh, not only will you be fulfilled and content, but, you know, you, you really won't feel that you're working. Uh, I'm sure you got the sense from my book that I never felt I was going to work. I was just doing what I do. That's just what I do. Uh, you know, I guess I could be uh, rounding up cattle. I, I don't know what. Uh, but this, this is just how I roll. Uh, it's just what I do. It, it, the idea that I've had a job for the last, whatever, 50 or 60 years, it just doesn't compute with me. Uh, and then the other side of the equation, uh, if I think one is going to have a wonderful and fulfilling life as I've had, is uh, to find love uh, and, and family, uh, which fulfills, I think, just a very, very basic uh, human uh, need. And, and certainly those two things together, work and family, have really defined for me my life. Going to the work side that you just mentioned, there's a Japanese phrase called Aikagai, which is the Japanese secret to a long and happy life that hits four things and two of the two of them you mentioned. So do what you love, do what you're good at, and then the other two are do that which the world needs and that which you can get paid for. And those four things together is what they believe is the secret to a long and happy life. Well, I, I, I have to say, uh, I, I guess I hit all of them. Uh, the, thir <laughs> the third one, what was the third one? Uh, that which the world needs. Yeah, well, needless to say, uh, you know, I've looked back on my career, and, you know, and sometimes I say to myself, you know, it's the old business of the road not taken. Well, suppose I had stayed in clinical medicine uh, and been the, uh, the full-time practicing doctor that I wanted. I guess I might have touched the lives of, I don't know, some thousands of patients in a long career, maybe even 10,000. I, I don't know. But as it's turned out, with the research, I've touched the lives of tens, hundreds of millions. I mean, you know, with the drugs that have been developed out of our work. Uh, so certainly it's been a benefit to society. So that's really good. And yeah, I have gotten paid very handsomely. Uh, not to mention the Nobel Prize, which was uh, pretty rich stuff. And you know, yeah, I think the, the Nobel Prize, and believe me, uh, winning prizes was never the intent of, of why anybody in their right mind goes into research. Uh, but the Nobel Prize was actually, I forget, the third or fourth largest prize financially that I received. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly paid the way for my family, which is not bad because I have five kids. Uh, okay. And <laughs> sounds, sounds about right. for uh, Yeah. 
a Jew. <laughs> right, exactly. My, my girlfriend's Jewish and she has tons. I, I went to a wedding last week and she said, oh yeah, just going to be like the immediate family and the cousins. There were like 45 to 50 people there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Immediate family. <laughs> absolutely. Family is very important. And especially in some of the, you know, I, I am descended from uh, as many uh, Jews in this country are from an immigrant uh, family that had emigrated from, uh, immigrated, yeah, emigrated from uh, Eastern Europe, uh, which is very common. Uh, and uh, yeah, large families uh, were, were a big part of the story. So I have a two-part question going yeah. off what we were just talking about. One is, what does it feel like to be a Nobel laureate? That's part, that's part one. Uh, uh, number, but number two, and the more serious question is, um, you know, of course, we should be rewarding people who do exceptional things, like for your discovery of GPCRs and their function and, you know, basically everything. Um, but in an environment like medical school, rewards can be kind of a double-edged sword where you see some of your colleagues who get rewarded and then their faces appear in like your school newsletter but you feel like you're working hard and you're not getting acknowledged or recognized. Um, and so this can kind of, you know, fester and become a proponent or a way to propagate imposter syndrome. But I guess the question I'm getting at is like, what is the real value, purpose and meaning of a reward? Yeah, I think that when don't I forget, at, Don't forget part one, by the way. What was part Oh, what is it? I, I was already forgot <laughs> it. Yeah, so what does it feel like to be a Nobel? That's been a very interesting experience. Uh, it does change your life. It even changes your name uh, because anytime I'm introduced now, I'm in virtually any setting, I'm introduced as a Nobel laureate, Bob Lefkowitz. Uh, it, it becomes part of your name. Uh, and for me, there was a, a certain sense of unreality almost about it when I finally won the prize because I had been touted, if you read the book, I had been touted uh, as somebody who was going to win the prize for many, many years, but I didn't. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, the, the, the key to disappointment in life is having unmet expectations. That That's what disappointment is about. To the extent that you don't have expectations, you're not going to have disappointments. But people were telling me every year, Bob, you know, you're going to win. It's, this is, must be the year. And it didn't happen. And this went on for about 20 years. Uh, so, my, my initial reaction when I got that call from Stockholm at five o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday was rather than some amazing sense of elation wanting to jump up and down, uh, was more one of sort of quiet satisfaction and almost relief. You know, the monkey is off my back. I'm never, ever going to have to answer the question again. Bob, when do you think you're going to win the Nobel Prize? Uh, I knew that phase of my life was over. Uh, and then you have all kinds of amazing experiences and, you know, you get to pontificate on any subject, regardless of how little you know about it. Uh, and I was always happy to oblige. Uh, and uh, but then, you know, I think for me personally, there was always and to this day, there still is a bit of the imposter syndrome uh, because throughout much of my career, I've known many, many Nobel laureates. Uh, Many of my good friends are Nobel laureates. And somehow for each of them, as they would win the prize, in my own mind, I would elevate them to a different level. And although they were friends uh, or people that I knew, I knew that I looked at them a bit differently. 
Okay. And then all of a sudden, I was one of them. Uh, and uh, I guess to a certain extent, yeah, to this day, it doesn't quite compute. Uh, again, as you probably gathered from reading the book, I, I have kind of a lively sense of humor. I've never taken myself all that seriously. Uh, but yeah, so now here I was as a Nobel laureate and everybody was taking me so seriously. Uh, and I'm saying to myself, <laughs> you know, who are they, who are they talking to? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's definitely a bit of the imposter syndrome there. Uh, now, what was the second part of the question? Uh, the second part is so, um, because you can, awards can be a like double edged sword in a place like medical school where student, everybody's working hard, but only a few of them are being recognized. What do you feel the real value, purpose, or meaning of an award really is? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, let me broaden it out some, and then I'll come back to that. So, in there are, as you probably know, or probably don't know, the number of prizes for science, scientific prizes, it seems limitless. I mean, it just, I thought I had heard of most of them. And I've ser I serve on so many prize juries. I'm sure you've heard of the Alaska Prize, for example. I, I actually got to attend it in 2018. How my, come? My, one of my old PIs is a juror. Do you ever meet, have you ever met Jeremy Nathans? Yeah, I know Jeremy very well. Yeah, yeah. He's, I, I worked in his lab for a summer before coming to medical school. He's a great he, guy. You know, I knew Jeremy. And his dad, Dan Mayer, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, who's a Nobel laureate, was, I mean, he's deceased, was one of my scientific heroes. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've known Jeremy since he was a grad student. Uh, I know him very well, very well now. But so there are a million scientific prizes. And I like the idea that there are these prizes because what they accomplish beyond just recognizing important discoveries is they put before the public the importance of science. Uh, and I think that encourages public support uh, and faith in science. Now, we have a whole separate issue we can talk about or not. We have a real problem in our country in that people don't take, a lot of people don't take science very seriously. Now, a different question, well, okay, that's scientific prizes, but what about <clears throat> what about what you were just talking about, like in medical school? You know, it's interesting. I come from a different generation. Uh, you, you and I are separated by uh, not one generation, but, you know, a number of generations. <clears throat> when I went to medical school, I graduated in 66, uh, college in 62. You know, you got grades and everything. Everybody had a class standing. I mean, you knew whether you were seventh in the class or 70th or 68th. I mean, everything was graded. Uh, and as a professor throughout my career, I watched all of this go away. It was sort of like a dirty, a dirty thing to actually evaluate anybody. Uh, and I guess I'm kind of old school. Uh, I think it's fine uh, to evaluate people and to grade them. Uh, but, you know, if you ask me to defend that, I mean, I, I, I don't know how you even pick. Uh, it's been a number of years now since I've been on a, any of the admissions committees, like for medical school or MD, PhD, all of which I've served my time on over the years. But I mean, if you don't have, I know they're going to, now they're going to be getting rid of a lot of places, the SAT for college admission. So uh, what, how are we going to judge if we have no grades and we have no scores? It's just all about 
recommendations. Uh, everybody's going to get a great recommendation. I mean, there's something you'll give anybody a great recommendation. So, yeah, I, I think there should be accountability. And, uh, but yeah, but you know, and that's the same thing. You know, at graduation, there are all these different awards that are given out. Uh, but yeah, I guess my own feeling is, uh, I guess I'm kind of a meritocrat or whatever the word is. I see no inherent problem in rewarding people. Now, one can say, well, it wasn't fair. I, I, I remember vividly when my two oldest kids, who are now in their 50s, uh, were little boys. And I took them every weekend to a flag football camp uh, where they would play flag football. Uh, and I, then at the end of the season, there was an award ceremony. And they gave out an award for best sportsmanship. And when my son didn't win, he broke down bawling hysterically and screaming. And I was trying to explain to him, as best you can to an eight-year-old, the irony of crying hysterically over not winning the best sportsman award, okay? Uh, I don't think he ever got it, uh, okay? <laughs> so uh, he just kept saying, it isn't fair, it isn't fair. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, you can always, uh, you know, a lot about life isn't fair, but uh, so that's that's kind of my take on awards. One of the things that I'm really curious about is looking at elite performers and people who have kind of pursued success and excellence in different fields. And I I think about athletes like Tiger Woods and and Michael Jordan who have given everything to their sport and almost to a degree to where the rest of their lives have suffered and burned because of it. And you picture, or I picture you as somebody who's been able to balance chasing success and chasing, you know, excellence in your field, but also having that value of family and community that you mentioned at the beginning of this episode. So how have you been able to balance that and pursue excellence while still realizing that there's another aspect of life and not letting everything else crumble? I think that's a wonderful, wonderful question. And, and one, one of the uh, things that I, I am asked most often uh, by young people is how do I balance work and family? And my kind of uh, initial rejoinder, uh, you know, sort of tongue in cheek is, well, you're asking the wrong guy. And what I mean by that is, you know, I always put so much of myself uh, into my work. Uh, I was driven in a certain sense, but by the same token, my family was always my touchstone. Uh, even during the busiest years of my career, I would, I never worked late. I would come home, I would leave, the, everybody knew, 6.15, Bob is leaving, I'd go home, I would have dinner with all five kids and the wife, I mean, seven of us around a small table. Uh, and that was always very, very important to me. Uh, so I guess in the end, it's, it's a matter of values. Now, things are very different. Now, uh, I was married very young. Uh, my first wife was uh, did not work outside the home. So she was a full-time homemaker. Uh, and that uh, took a tremendous burden off me. Today, most couples that I see, you know, in my lab, etc., cetera, uh, one scientist or physician is partnered with another scientist or physician, uh, and the uh, child rearing and domestic chores are shared, if not equally, much more equally than in my day. 
when it was a much more traditional thing. Uh, the wife was home tending to the babies uh, and uh, the male was out uh, shooting the animals uh, and bringing the dinner. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, you know, say what you will, I mean, that's easier for the guy if it has a career and the guy, or vice versa. But today things are very, uh, very much uh, more equitable. Uh, and I guess that makes things easier uh, or maybe it makes it more difficult. I don't know, it makes it more equitable that much is for sure. Uh, but uh, whether that works smoothly or not, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, family was always so important to me and is to this day. Uh, absolutely. I'll have to let you know in 10 years, my, my girlfriend's a MD PhD student as well. Okay. And so, uh, I'll, I'll get back to you and see if it works. <laughs> Got you. I, I, I hear you. Well, it seems, that seems to be the thing. I mean, virtually everybody in my lab who is partnered, uh, has a partner who's a professional or is generally a scientist because, you know, let's face it, where do you meet people? Uh, you know, well, I don't know. You guys go on these dating apps. I don't know what happens. No, no. I met mine at an interview, actually. Okay. See, most people still, I think, people I know, meet their partners, spouses. You know, how many places? Do you, either at work or at your church or, you know, there aren't a lot of places that you meet people. Uh, I mean, the mere fact that most people do find a loving partner is pretty amazing. When you think how few people we actually interact with in a close enough way uh, to really develop such a relationship. It's really amazing. Uh, it, it suggests that there isn't as much stringency in that uh, as, as you might expect, because, you know, as I say, you don't meet that many people in a, in a life. Not necessarily just for romantic relationships, but is there a particular way you approach relationships? relationships with people who come through your lab or you work with or you collaborate with that because because I feel like if you have so few interactions we should make the most out of each one of those interactions and I'm wondering how you approach that in your day-to-day -day life yeah so you know you probably know that I have uh, trained somewhere around 250 people now in my lab I'd say the commonest denizen of my lab is either a basic science postdoctoral fellow or a, uh, a clinical fellow who's trying his hand or her hand at research. And then to a much smaller extent, uh, graduate students. I've had a few dozen graduate students, but I've had literally hundreds of postdocs. Uh, and I think there are several things. First of all, relationships are at the core of what I do. Uh, you know, I received no formal training in mentoring. Nobody does. Uh, but I think I've turned out, the evidence would say, to be a fairly successful mentor. And if that's true, I think a big reason is that I so value my relationships with each trainee. Each one's unique. And I really love uh, getting to know each one at a very deep level. I often tell people that if, if I had to work by myself uh, in a lab on a deserted island with every convenience you could possibly have. I, mean, I would give it up 
in a minute because for me it's a communal activity uh and and sharing you know every aspect of it from designing experiments to uh to interpreting experiments to anguishing together when it doesn't work which is most of the time or exulting on the rare occasion when it does and we make progress to me that's what it is all about and in some mystical sense the actual scientific discoveries are almost the side product uh, for me the fundamental aspect is just doing it uh and you know i got to do something so uh we did this and uh, wow look we made these discoveries but basically if you ask me what i'm doing is i'm working together with these folks and as i say i love the challenge of, of finding out how to most successfully motivate uh and mentor uh, each trainee because everyone is different and the same person is different at different points in their training uh but the first thing i got to do is i got to assess what do i got here uh, have i got a ferrari with a 550 horsepower engine uh you know or have i got you know a very reliable chevy uh with 180 uh engine and, and four cylinders uh and that's key because i can't expect the performance out of the uh, Chevy with the four-cylinder engine that I can out of the Ferrari with the 12-cylinder. Uh, so I got to first make an assessment of what I'm dealing with here. And then once I do that, and of course, none of this is going on at a really conscious level, but I know this is my process. Then I start to begin to see how am I going to challenge this person to, uh, to really get them to work at their best. So for me, if you say, what's the goal? The goal for every one of my trainees is the same. Uh, and I've said this many times, to have them experience at some point while we are working together, what it feels like to work right at their potential, to essentially be flat out and in full stride, uh, you know, like, just flat out. I mean, just just running as fast as they can, and everything's working. Everything's working, etc. And I would say I achieve that about eighty-five percent of the time, eighty percent of the time, not always. But in order to do that, I got to know what I think they're capable of. Sometimes they surprise me, of course, but by and large, I've gotten pretty good at this, and that's very important in terms of guiding them into what sorts of things to work on. I imagine in order to get to that point where you hit that flow state, you have to go through a lot of failures on the way. And I know you mentioned how research is mostly failures and you have some breakthroughs um, earlier in our discussion. In my medical school interview, one of my interviews, one of the attendings asked me, uh, when do you decide to give up on something when you're failing versus continue to press ahead? whether that's research or that's uh, something you're pursuing. And I didn't really have a great answer for it at the time. And so I want to ask you, when you're doing research or whether you're in life, when do you decide to give up and, and decide this isn't the right thing for now versus continuing to push on through a few failures? So that's an excellent question. And, and here's my answer. I can't explain it to you. Okay. So... This comes down to the issue of mentoring and why are there certain lineages in science? Okay. Uh, I wrote a, an article called 
a serendipitous scientist, okay, which you can look up. It was an annual review of pharmacology five or six, seven years ago. Uh, I tell my life story. But in figure two of that paper, I present a uh, scientific family tree uh, of nine Nobel Prize winning scientists. Now, we talked about the Yellow Berets before. That amazing program uh, it turns out between 1964 and 1972, which were the uh, peak years of the Vietnam War, nine of us, all physicians, most without any prior scientific background, who went through that two-year program, nine of us went on to win the Nobel Prize. Now, if you then look, who did we train with? Who did they train with? Who did they train with? And go back four or five generations. Well, half of them trained with Nobel laureates. I did not. Of the other half of us who didn't train with a Nobel laureate, you don't have to go any further up the scientific family tree than the scientific grandparent to find a Nobel laureate. And if you, as you go back, it's just filled with Nobel laureates. Well, now, Nobel laureates are just the tip of the iceberg. If you look at almost any really uh, successful scientist, you'll find that they trained with a very successful scientist. Peter, you mentioned uh, Jeremy Nathans. Well, his mentor, I forget what his name was, he was a giant molecular biology. Uh, Hodgeness. Yes, exactly. Perfect example. Uh, and you always find that. So where am I going and how does this relate to your question? Well, what is mentoring about? Mentoring is about transferring ways of working and values that can't be written down in a protocol book. I always tell people, if something's important, you can look it up in a book. Uh, so amongst the many things that you learn by watching a mentor is just what you asked, Caleb. How do you know when to hold them and when to fold them? Okay, I can't tell you generally or even specifically, but if you work with me for three, four, five years, you will watch me over and over again make that decision. And you'll get a feel for what Bob would do. Now, Bob's not always right, but he's right a lot. Uh, and so you pick up that kind of value. Uh, that's an example of the kind of thing you can get from mentoring. The, the question that your interviewer asked is not one that you can answer. And th this is the essence of mentoring because in both science and medicine, the profession is, once you learn the language, which is what medical school or graduate school is all, once you learn the language, which is all they can teach you from the books, the rest of it is all about uh, apprenticeship. Okay, uh, both in the clinics and in the laboratories. And there are all sorts of things that fall into that category. One is you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Let's talk about something even more fundamental to a scientist. How do you know what to work on? What's your problem? How do you decide that? Well, again, if you say, well, how do you? Do I can't tell you, but watch me for, for a few years and you'll see what I decide to work on and what I decide not to work on. I mean, 
you're trying to get to a certain goal, and all of a sudden there's an unexpected result. Now you could pursue that, but it'll take you off, it'll take your eye off the main thing. But when do you pursue an unexpected possible distraction? When do you leave it to the side and keep going? I can't tell you that either. But I got to make that decision almost every week. Well, watch how I do it, uh, and you'll you'll get a sense of my values. How do you decide what to work on in the first place? Well, I mean, there. I'll tell you something which relates to failure. It's a story I often tell. I think I tell it in the book. I'm not sure. Uh, there's a, a guy who's about 15 years younger than me that I have mentored at Duke. He's a prof named professor now. Uh, but I've mentored him a lot through his career. Well, I have a uh, like a little ritual that I've gone through throughout most of my career, which is in the last week of the year between Christmas and New Year, uh, I spend a few hours sitting at my desk in the office, looking at the year ahead and drawing up goals and projects that we might work on in the year ahead. That exercise always begins with a review of the previous year's document. Okay. And I go through and I look at everything I was thinking about doing a year ago and I make notations. Did it pan out? Did we make progress? Was it a total failure? Was it so stupid I reassessed uh, in the full light of day and I didn't work on it at all? And then based on that review, uh, I see what was working, what was not, and I make the plan for the next year. So while I'm doing that, this guy at that point, probably a fairly successful associate professor already, comes into my office. Uh, he says, what are you doing, Bob? I explain. Uh, he says, well, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm just at the moment I'm trying to decide what fraction of my projects are actually working. I said, what kind of year you have? He says, absolutely great. I said, well, what fraction of what you're working on would you say is successful? He said, well, just about everything. I'd say 90%. I said, well, good for you. He says, how about you? I said, I don't know. I'm pretty typical. I'd say about 20%. He said, that's it? I said, yeah, that's good. He says, you wouldn't prefer it was higher? I said, well, some years it does get high. He said, how high? I said, well, some years it gets as high as about 50%. But anytime I see that, I'm unhappy. He says, you're unhappy? What are you talking about? I said, well, you know, if half of them, everything I'm trying to do is working, I'm not really working on, you know, challenging enough projects as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so I said, I, I, to me, failing most of the time is a pretty good indicator that I'm taking on important problems. This, this goes to the issue that there are various ways you can fail in science. So at this end of the spectrum are things which are of no importance, they're trivial, but there's a 100% chance you will succeed in doing them. Over here are things that are of cataclysmic importance, okay? If you could solve them, uh, you know, it would be just an amazing thing. Uh, but the, the reality is you have no chance of solving them. So, over here, you will fail, not because you don't get the project done and publish, probably many papers. You'll fail because nobody cares, nobody will cite them, and the work is trivial, just like the problem. Over here, you'll fail because you just won't be able to get it done. So the secret to success is to work as far along the spectrum towards importance, relevance, and risk without going off that cliff that you can't do it. Now, how in the world do you know where that point is? You don't. So how do you get good at making those judgments? You work, you work together with somebody who's demonstrated they're pretty good at that. 
so all of that by way of, of heading up the question uh, that you asked, Caleb, uh, how, how do you know when to hold them, when to fold them? You don't, but if you watch somebody who's good at making those decisions, then you, uh, you too can pick up a way of doing things. And to me, that is the essence of mentoring. I love that answer just because I feel like you touched on deciding on a problem and that's kind of where I'm at in my training right now. Um, and it's something I think about every day. So as well, you should. And here's something to, uh, to bear in mind so that you don't stress yourself too much. I have found that the correspondence of what my students start working on, on day one, and what they wind up doing in the end is not very high. So you begin, you get on that horse, you saddle up, and you ride off. But uh, before you know it, it's galloping down a road that you didn't even think you were going. So don't stress too much about the initial choice of the project. All right. Well, thank you for that. We, I wanted to end this interview with a question we ask everybody, but I'm also going to tie it into your memoir because I thought this was a hilarious moment in your book. Um, there was a moment in the beginning of your book where you got in trouble as a kid for ordering too many books using yes. your parents' money. And so we ask all of the leaders who come on our, our show, what are several books you would recommend to young medical trainees that you've read recently? One can be your memoir. Oh, that that <laughs> right. So first of all, let let me. Uh, where's my here, book? I have it. I have it right here. You got it right here. A funny thing right happened here. on the way to Stockholm. So uh, I have remarkably uh, eclectic uh, tastes. Uh, so I, I wouldn't presume uh, to recommend uh, a book. I can tell you the the many books that I'm reading at the moment, uh, and I say many. The number that I will actually finish uh, is modest. Uh, I, I'm a real bibliophile, no different now than when I was a kid. Only now I have the wherewithal that I don't have to go to the library. I just buy them. So I'm, sur I'm surrounded. I have about 3,000 books in the house. Uh, the stack on my night table is about six or eight high. Uh, and I can't remember everything that's in there. But... The one I'm deepest in, I love biography of uh, heroic uh, figures. Uh, one of my favorites is Winston Churchill. Uh, and I'm currently about 500 pages into a 1,000 uh, page biography of Winston Churchill. Uh, I read a lot about World War II uh, for whatever reason. Is it the Splendid and the Vile? Say again? Is it the Splendid and the Vile? I think so, yeah. By uh, Eric Larson? Yeah. I just finished that one. Did you like it? it? Good. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. And I love biographies. I, I, um, this guy who just wrote the biography of Jennifer Doudna, uh, whose name I'm blocking. Uh, Is she old enough to have a biography, though? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Uh, I heard him. In, he's, I've read several of his biographies, including one of Albert Einstein, which I loved. Uh, and one of Leonardo da Vinci, and he's amazing, and another one of uh, Ben Franklin. Uh, so I love biography. Now, I'm currently reading, and I've been very entertained by, so you know who Francis Collins is, the head of the NIH, mm -hmm. who's a very good friend of mine. Uh, and 
he wrote, he's an evangelical Christian, believe it or not, and a world-class geneticist. That's not a combination that one sees very often. So he wrote a book, uh, golly, it must be 10, 12 years ago. Uh, and I don't remember the title, but it's basically, you could look it up. It's very interesting. It, it's how he has melded uh, an evangelical faith in uh, a God who's involved in people's personal lives with scientific discipline, uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, so that's one. Uh, and uh, I think you're referring to the language of God. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. He has a, a couple books. On that yeah. subject, absolutely. Uh, then I've always got an Agatha Christie sitting there just in case I need something uh, very, very light. Uh, at the bottom of this pile, uh, I don't know why I got it, is Plato's Republic, uh, which I decided I got to reread that. Uh, I read it in college, etc. So I you know, just bought a copy, and it's gradually worked its way down to the bottom of my stack. And, and then I recently... Uh, one of the things that I'm 78 now, and I've been catching up with a lot of old friends that I haven't talked to in decades, including some guys who were wonderful friends at Bronx High School of Science. So one of them spent, he's now retired. All my friends are retired. Uh, but this guy uh, became a professor of mathematics. Uh, and I was telling him how much I regretted that I didn't take more mathematics in college. Uh, so he sent me three books that are supposed to be uh, mathematics for, you know, sort of lay people. Uh, two of them are beyond me, uh, but one of them is like it's within range, so I'm trying to read that. So anyway, it's very eclectic uh, mm-hmm. collection of books. Now, when I was when I was very young, I loved reading medical fiction, uh, and uh, there, there were a couple of novels. Uh, one was called Arrowsmith, uh, which is about traces the uh, by Sinclair Lewis. Uh, I think it won the Pulitzer Prize in the 20s. Uh, and it's about a person just about your stage uh, who enters from a small Midwestern town, enters medical school, uh, and then becomes kind of a physician scientist, etc. The other one is called The Citadel. Uh, they're both novels about, and then there was another one called by Paul de Cruyff, uh, which is uh, called Microbe Hunters, which was not fiction. Uh, so those books were books that kind of inspired me uh, to, to, to pursue the course that I did. Well, thank you so much for the suggestions. Uh, I also have my book stack right now. My fiance gets mad at me sometimes as well. So on the same page with you there. Um, but this was so fun. I definitely learned a lot. I'm sure Peter did as well. And hopefully our listeners will take a lot of this as well. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Pleasure getting to know you two guys. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. So that's all for today. Thanks everyone so much for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Hopefully you were able to learn something new and get a better perspective of how we can improve as leaders. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also contact us and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.